to Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. Here we explore the training and development of America's leaders in the application of air power and the profession of arms. The views expressed are those of the hosts and do not reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. The mention of companies by name is solely for the purpose of discussion and should not be implied as endorsement. Welcome back to another episode of Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. I'm Colin Slade. And I'm Reed Gann, and we're your hosts for Commission Ed. In today's episode, we are going to introduce you to one of my greatest mentors, greatest friends in the Air Force, someone I respect more than I can say. Lieutenant Colonel Tim Scheffler goes by Chef, and that's how I know him. He is a really amazing person, both inside and out, both personally and professionally. And when we talked about needing to do an episode about civil engineering, there is nobody else that I would rather speak to this career field than him. He is an engineer through and through, and I hope that really comes out in this interview that I'm so excited to share with everybody today. Yeah. Colin, normally when we do prep for episodes, one or each of us will do an interview, and then we share between the two of us, and we kind of take notes on things we want to discuss. I don't have a whole lot on this one because I was learning the whole time. Yeah. I was just learning. There wasn't, you know, oh, I want to talk about that or, oh, I want more information on this. It was just straight up knowledge bombs for me. So I'm really excited to bring this interview to the audience. It's our first acting squadron commander Mm -hmm. and incredible insights that are here. So just so much. So buckle up, get tucked in for a really good episode. So with that, let's turn it over to my friend, my mentor, Lieutenant Colonel Tim Scheffler, or Chef. Lieutenant Colonel Tim Scheffler, Chef, welcome to the Commission Ed Podcast. I am so excited to have you here. How are things going right now? They're going good. A little crazy, Colin, but they're going good. <laughs> yeah, we had a little back and forth before we turned the mics on. Why are things so crazy now? What have you been up to? So right now, Colin, I'm the sitting squadron commander for the 627 Civil Engineer Squadron, Joint Base Lewis-McCord. And uh, things are a little crazy just with the COVID challenges of trying to command during this trying time. And of course, there's a lot of dynamic things going on in the world right now, too. So just lots of interesting things going on. And and I'm actually in the process, too, of of trying to pick up the family and move them out to Yokota Air Base in Japan this summer, where I'll be taking command of the 374th Civil Engineer Squadron. Wow. Never a a dull moment for you. No, certainly not. (laughs) All right. It's all good news, though. Yeah, absolutely. Being a commander, obviously, that's going to take up a lot of your time. You've got a family there at home with you. They're going to take up some time. Yeah. And then you know, you're just an all around great person who has your fingers in a lot of different things. And no wonder you're busy feeling like you're running around with your head cut off. But <laughs> Chef, thank you so much for taking the opportunity to join me here on the podcast. So excited to talk to you. Just one, because You're an incredible human. I value any time I get to spend with you. But today we're talking about 
our mutual career field, the 32 Echo, 32E civil engineer career field and best career field in the Air Force, right? Absolutely. Definitely, man. Yeah. So my goal here today is to settle all those arguments and leave everyone in agreement, nodding their heads, saying, absolutely, that is the case. I want to go be a civil engineer. So that's our goal, right? That's outstanding. I'm totally on board with that. Excellent. All right. Well, before we get there, let's give you the opportunity to introduce yourself a little bit more to the audience. Give us an idea of who you are, where you come from, how'd you get into the Air Force and the things that have been part of your career, highlights, lowlights, anything you want to share up to this point. Okay. So one, thanks for having the patience and wherewithal and uh, persistence <laughs> to get me on the podcast. I really do appreciate it, Colin. Sure. And I really do appreciate what both you and Reed are doing in this podcast to be able to widen folks' apertures on the different things that is going on inside of the Air Force, the different people, the many talented and amazing airmen that we have working across our force. So I just appreciate you doing what you're doing. And I think your words are way too kind, bro. But so to talk about where I've been in the Air Force and what got me here. So in high school, I actually started out in, in Navy Junior ROTC down in Orlando, Florida. And uh, I did Junior ROTC for a little while with the hopes of getting a scholarship. Junior year of high school, my parents moved up to Virginia in the Hampton Roads area. And I ended up going to an Air Force Junior ROTC school in Hampton High. And then I spent two years there. I graduated and I got a scholarship. And that was how I was going to pay for college, right? So yeah. I knew I wanted to go to college. I knew I wanted to study computer engineering or electrical engineering or programming or something to do with electrical circuits and stuff. And so I put the scholarship in and they said, yes, you'll do electrical engineering. And so I studied electrical engineering at Virginia Tech for the undergraduate. The Air Force ended up choosing electrical engineering. So I just went with it. And they even said, they were like, would you want to do a fifth year? And I was like, absolutely. I get to take <laughs> right. more classes for a whole nother year and you're going to pay for it. So the Air Force was really good in that regard. And I went to Virginia Tech, went to the Corps of Cadets there, of course, so it was a military school yeah. and got a, just an awesome experience there. And many of the leadership lessons I have learned came from Virginia Tech. Excellent. I would argue I still bleed orange and maroon for sure. And of course, that's where I met Lori. And so she commissioned in the Army. And I commissioned in the Air Force. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting. So I graduate from Virginia Tech, commissioned to the Air Force, and uh, they branched me as a 62 Echo, mm -hmm. which is an acquisitions officer. In fact, I think you've actually had at least uh, acquisitions or 63. Yeah, we had Major Michelle Willett. She was a 62 Echo. Yeah. So I did 62 Echo as my branch. There are no 62 Echoes at Pope Air Force Base when it was still Pope Air Force Base back when I commissioned in 2004, and that's where my wife was. And so the Air Force basically allows you to apply for joint spouse assignment. And so I went around Pope Air Force Base, and I put all the Air Force bases that were around it that had 62 Echoes, but I said I'd really like to go to Pope Air Force Base if possible. Yeah. Well, the Air Force in there, because the Air Force is freaking awesome, said, you know what? <laughs> We'll go ahead and give you a career broadening assignment as a second lieutenant into civil engineering. And I said, civil engineering? Yeah. I'm an electrical engineer. I can't do civil engineering. So I was really nervous about getting into the career field, but I got into the career field at Pope Air Force Base. And I actually went to Acquisitions 101 and WFAM 102. I earned my Acquisitions AFS for initial skills training. Yeah. And I absolutely fell in love with what the civil engineers were doing. And the initial skills for 62 Echoes, I was like, that's that's not really what I want to do. Yeah. Like, I really want to do the CE thing. And timing is everything, right? So 
that just so happened, just so happened that my career field was trying to kick 75% of my year group out. And so I managed to call the functional. I said, hey, I'm really interested in switching over to be a civil engineer. She said, well, call the civil engineer functional and see if they want to take you. Called the civil engineer functional. I said, hey, I'm an electrical engineer. And they said, we'll take you. <laughs> so it was, that's about how it went down. I should have probably clarified that at that point in time, I didn't know anything about electrical systems or power systems or much of any of that. Yeah, but, but you had a degree in electrical engineering. But I had a degree in electrical engineering. Yes, I knew a little bit of the magic. Which is a unicorn within the civil engineering career field, by the way. And I'm sure we'll get into that. It really is. Yeah. So got to Pope Air Force Base. I went to initial skills for acquisitions. And then I actually deployed before going to Management 101, which is the Air Force Civil Engineer mm -hmm. Basic School, because I was still an acquisitions officer. And so I deployed as a CE officer. I spent six months in the Middle East working on a very small installation, which oddly enough, this is how small the Air Force is, okay? So our base that I was working at in Iraq basically had myself, an army lieutenant colonel, a platoon minus of Marines for security, a handful of what we called MIT teams, military training teams. Mm -hmm. And those were army reserve units that were embedded into three Iraqi infantry battalions and an infantry brigade headquarters. Huh. And it was my job to work with the contractor that was on the installation and help them work with the Iraqis to basically build this base from ground up. Yep. And I had an absolute blast running convoys and stuff, working for multinational security coalition transition Iraq. And I got back from that and I said, yeah, this CE thing is what I want to do. Yeah, I mean, talk about a trial by fire. You hadn't even yeah. been to the initial skills training. They deploy you into the middle of a war zone and not to like a built up standardized base already, but a little postage stamp and say, <laughs> OK, figure it out. Exactly. And what I was going to say, so, you know, how small this Air Force is, right? So my senior right now, uh -huh. my superintendent or senior enlisted leader for the squadron right now, he was at the exact same base two rotations after me. And so we started going through our history, just talking war stories and stuff. And he was like, wait, you were at Camp India? And I was like, yeah, because I was right there. And from this date, and we just started laughing yeah. <laughs> just of all the goofiness that happened there. It was a trip. Awesome. So they deploy you. Yep. You come back and you finally get to go to 101 and earn the 32 Echo AFS. Is that right? Earn the compass and the gear, yes. Okay. So I get back from Iraq and I go to Management 101 to earn my occupational badge as a CE officer, as a first lieutenant. Okay. And absolutely. And I go through 101 and I realize, yes, this is absolutely the right choice for me. This is what I want to do. So we spend another couple of years at Pope Air Force Base bouncing around the squadron. I get another opportunity. Okay. So they didn't move you away from Pope. No. So my wife was still at Fort Bragg okay. uh, in the 82nd Airborne as a chemical officer. So she was still there and we were able to stay at Pope Air Force Base and I stayed in the CE squadron and uh, kept working in the CE squadron. I deployed against this time to Shakistan. Okay. Basically went to work for Afcent. They needed somebody to take all of our old UTCs, the unit type codes, basically yep. how we deploy and organize forces and move them into the new ones. So way back in the day, back before you came in to be in the CE Corps, we used to have 55 PACS team. 
Right. And that was like the basis for how we build everything. And then we modularized our troops and forces and engineers and said, well, we need to make it a little bit more flexible and let's build it around a 26-man team. And so we basically had to take everything that was in the AOR on the entire tip fid during the surge of Iraq mm-hmm. and Afghanistan and basically change all of those UTCs within the tip fit. And so reconfigure how that force is deployed, how that capability is packaged and presented to the combatant commander in order to achieve some particular right. effect. Obviously not directly related to combat because we're civil engineers, yep. but it's a really important aspect of what we do. We are a capability that is available to the commander and those UTCs, those unit type codes and these different force packages are a big part of how we operate, right? Absolutely. So I did that and got back to Pope. While I was there, I got uh, notified by uh, AFIT. They said, hey, chef, we like what you did at 101. We know you want to come back here to be an instructor. and We think we have a slot for you. Mm -hmm. And so they said, uh, so go ahead and put your application in. I went ahead and did my application. I got picked up to be the electrical engineering instructor. And so they sent me to school and I picked Wazoo, Washington State University. And so the Air Force paid for my master's degree in electrical engineering. And it was in energy and power systems. So it was much more in the stuff that was applicable to the Air Force infrastructure, utility systems and stuff. So I went and studied power systems at Wazoo in Eastern Washington, and I graduated from there and then went to be an instructor at AFIT. And so at AFIT, Air Force Institute of Technology, I worked for the Civil Engineer School, and we handle all continuing education and initial skills development for all CE officers and now CE airmen enlisted forces throughout our Air Force, along with all the civilians as well. It's a tremendous place to work. It's probably one of the hardest assignments to leave mm-hmm. simply because you've got a really tight knit group of instructors there. And I genuinely believe like there is nothing more rewarding than teaching a topic that somebody is intimidated by. And then having that person like seeing a light bulb go off and they're like, I get it now. I understand. And you're like, yes, it was such a rewarding experience. Yeah. So that's actually where I met you for the first time, you know, for better or for worse, everything that I know (laughs) about civil engineering started with you. I know. (laughs) And definitely everything that I know about electrical engineering and power systems and all of that, which is not very much. (laughs) (laughs) I can attribute that to you. I have this memory seared in my brain of one of the tests that you gave us. And yeah, and I was supposed to you know, do you know some sort of calculation for three phase power. And I'm like, <laughs> I have no idea what this is. <laughs> I don't know what he's asking me. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I passed. I got like a 48 percent, which because of the curve. Engineers, we grade on a curve. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I ended up passing and, you know, so I got my gears and wings as well. So (laughs) outstanding. Yeah. So that was a great experience. I ended up working there for three and a half years. And then from there, I really needed to get back to the base level to re-baseline my understanding of the career field and what we're doing. So then I ended up going out to IUD and Cutter in Doha. And they said, hey, chef, you're going to go out there. You're going to do a one-year tour, but you can apply to see if your command CENTCOM will sponsor your family come out. And I said, Okay. So my wife, you know, she spent a year in Kuwait already. We actually met up in the deed while we were both overseas. So we were like, sure, why not? Let's try this. Let's see if we bring the family over there. By then we had uh, three kids. 
And was she still serving active in the army? So she actually separated after we had our first okay. in North Carolina. And that was a conversation we had seen enough husbands and wives that were Army Air Force just struggled to get assigned to the same duty locations. And while, you know, dual income would be nice, it's not yeah. really required. And so we just decided to live within our means. And she became a full-time mom, which uh, she's the smarter of the two of us by far, by a long shot, believe me. So, And no offense, Chef, I'm not going <laughs> to argue that <laughs> you have met her so I you know this met her and she is a <laughs> phenomenal human being you she is definitely married up i did i absolutely married up and so we probably would be a little better off right now if she had stayed in she'd be more successful than me i think but she decided to separate and, and become the full-time mom thing which is actually awesome she homeschools all four of our kids and she does that flawlessly our children are brilliant probably be not so good if it was me doing it but i try to help out where i can yeah sure so we got it proved and ended up at Al-Udeed together. And so we got to enjoy two years in the desert. And it was a challenging time just because there was about, I want to say there's only like 26 families or something at the time. And it was different. Yeah, It was definitely different. It was nice. We did have some communities, basically some folks within the neighborhoods that we could tie into and spend time with and get to know and party with and just have fun. And yeah, commiserate the constant rotating door of all the deployers coming in and out of theater. But it was good. It was good. It was a great experience for sure. That's where we got to meet again. Yeah, I was just going to say our paths crossed there again. And that was a really important experience for me. I'm glad that you were there to be part of it. That's really where I cut my teeth as an officer. That's really where I learned what it meant to be a civil engineer, You know what the importance of the commission really is. Yeah. Not that I couldn't have learned that while back at home station, but being there deployed with the enlisted airmen who are actively doing their craft on behalf of that combatant commander like we were talking about before and seeing how I fit into all of that was really important. And the mentorship that you provided me throughout that experience was phenomenal. We were surrounded by great CE officers, great commander, yeah. great people across the base. And yeah, that was a really important experience for me. And I'm really glad that you were able to be a part of that. Yeah, man. And you're absolutely spot on. We had, I was really fortunate for both years because the first year we had an amazing squadron commander and then an amazing group commander. And then the following year, I was really nervous because I was like, who am I going to get for a group commander and who am I going to get for a squadron commander? Because I'm going to be stuck with them for a year. Right. And again, like just amazing people. So it just helped me get a lot of confidence in the leaders that we're selecting in our Air Force for those key positions. Yeah. So it was really good. Well, and another comment that I want to make about deployments like that, it's an opportunity for the best of you to come out. Right. Again, not that couldn't happen back at home station, but the distractions are less. And I don't want to call family a distraction. I don't want to call, you know, engagement in, in the community or your hobbies that you typically pursue a distraction. Right. But they pull your attention away from what you are doing for the Air Force, where in a deployed environment, even in some place as enduring as Al-Yadid, yeah. you are removed from the typical life and are then able to focus that much more on the CE mission, on the Air Force mission. And I think that sort of environment really brings out the best in people. Yeah. At least it can. It can. It doesn't always work that way, but it definitely can. Sometimes it brings out the crazy in us, right? So yeah, so two years at IUD, working as the engineering flight commander. So basically handling all of the projects 
all of the planning, all of the scope development, a lot of host nation coordination, right? So that was a lot of fun. Yeah. The Air Force, like we're there, we care about the United States interests and the host nation cares about the host nation's interests. And sometimes there's some friction points there, right? Trying to negotiate that minefield. And of course, the other challenge is, and you're very familiar with this from your experience there, right? And one of the things that I struggle with engineering is none of the decisions we make in engineering are two-year decisions, right? None of them have short shadows. They all have very long shadows. We build facilities to last 50 years, sometimes longer. And the reality is we build facilities with the expectation that it probably won't be maintained right. really well because we don't fund maintenance on facilities really well well, right? We're getting better. We're getting better. But it's frankly, if you got to choose between buying a new platform or building a new facility, it's probably going to be the platform that wins out, right? Usually. Yep. Usually. So that's one of those challenges that all the things that we deal with are on really long timelines. And the host nation was painfully aware that we were on a six-month rotation. Yep. <laughs> and sometimes we would forget why we did something to begin with in six months. So trying to deal with those rotational amnesia, you know, as we called it, to be able to get that accomplished was always a challenge. Yeah. But it was good. It was lots of really neat problems to solve, lots of really neat things to try to tackle and amazing PowerPoints <laughs> right. to build, right? <laughs> to <laughs> get in your PowerPoint Ranger tab, right? Exactly. So from LUD, left there, in 2015, I got picked up for Air Command and Staff College, and I went to Air Command and Staff College to do the PAS program, so the Political Military Affairs Strategist, and graduated from that in 2016, and then I headed down to U.S. Southern Command in sunny Miami, Florida. And so... Hardship tour. Oh, it was a hardship tour. So it was actually, it was really interesting. We lived in Pembroke Pines. We call it the Northern Officers Quarters. So there's not housing... U.S. Southern Command is literally a post-it stamp. It's like a building with a fence around it. Yeah. And of course, they moved up from Panama a little while back and got this new headquarters facility there in Miami, Florida. And so we were living up north because we couldn't quite afford to get a house big enough to live down near Doral. And so the commute was probably 45-ish minutes yeah. on an hour and 15 on a bad day. But like I could probably do it in 30 minutes on a good day. And so... Working down there, it was definitely a different experience, for sure. So it was my career broadening assignment as a PAS officer. Yeah. And so PAS officers are essentially FAOs without region specificity or language training. Political military affairs, basically, how do you deal with civil military relationships? How do we integrate with State Department? How do we integrate with our civilian leadership? And how do we make sure as the military, those roles and those relationships are proper? Mm -hmm. And then also, how do we partner with country teams inside of foreign nations, the U.S. country teams, to be able to grow our relationships, increase security? So we call it security cooperation operations. Yeah. And so how do we enhance their security forces, whether it be largely military forces, to be able to better provide the security and operations within their own country and meet their own country's needs. Yeah, very similar to a lot of the conversations that we were having there at Al-Udeed with the host nation. Yeah. So, yeah. Absolutely. Got to draw on some previous experience that you had in Iraq and then Al-Udeed and then now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Good to you know, put that all into context. Absolutely. And so from my perspective, it was a joint tour, a J-coded billet. So okay. pretty important, neat opportunity to be able to take advantage of a J-coded billet. Not many engineers get to do that. Right. And so I got to sit on the Joint Operations Center floor as a watch captain. And so I worked as a watch captain for about a year. And so we would pull two shifts. 
two shifts on, two shifts off, three shifts on, two shifts off, two shifts on, three shifts off. And then you'd switch from night to days or days to nights, depending on, you know, back right. and forth. So two weeks, days, two weeks, nights, two weeks, days, two weeks, nights. I have to say that when Hurricane Matthew came through and we had to put the storm shutters up on our house, those stayed up as long as I could make them stay up because <laughs> having the storm shutters up on the house so I could sleep was awesome. I was just pitch black in there. It was a really neat experience. Just from a joint operations center, we were basically tracking everything, all the U.S. operations, all the security cooperation operations, all the exercises that was going on in Latin America, Caribbean, and South America. So it was eye-opening, to say the least. So it was just really neat to be able to put a lot of different things in perspective. We were responsible for consolidating weekly reports from all the different security cooperation offices and the SDO DATS, which is basically the senior defense attaches, which work for the ambassador within that particular country. So your SDO DATs are, those are O6s, vast majority of them, that are foreign area officers. And so they're talking to the chief of mission to basically, who's representing the president in that country to be able to tell the combatant commander, hey, this is what the military is doing. And here is how it connects and ties in with the country team. Right. And it was just a really great experience. So did the first year there in the jock floor. And apparently I made somebody really mad or (laughs) made somebody really happy, but I ended up getting pulled down to be the deputy executive officer for the four-star in the front office at U.S. Southern Command. And I got to spend a year working for Admiral Tidd before he retired. And then Admiral Fowler came down after working as the senior military advisor for General Secretary Mattis. And I got to work for Admiral Fowler for just under a year, which was an awesome experience. Yeah, absolutely. So it spent two years basically pulling deputy exec a job, and apparently I didn't screw it up too much because I got picked up to command. Again, you either made somebody really happy or really angry. (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. I think part of it, too, the developmental team said, hey, chef, he's been doing this joint gig for like three years. You know, we should send him to this joint base, Lewis McCord, and he can figure all this joint stuff out. So Exactly. He speaks joint. He speaks joint. Yes. So... I graduated from Southcom and we actually drove from Miami, Florida. We did a road trip. It was a 31-day road trip from U.S. Southcom down in Miami, Florida, all the way up to Seattle, Washington, basically, all the way across the country, which was a phenomenal experience. We got to stop and say hello to a bunch of people in Ohio and throughout the country, folks that I'd worked with at the deed. I think you remember Senior Master Sergeant Dubiak got to stop and see him in Colorado. And, and so it was a phenomenal experience. That it was a great road trip. And then took the stick in uh, late June and been doing the COVID scene here, which has been challenging to say the least, trying to command and lead and build connective tissue within our squadron. It's been difficult at times and frustrating, but uh, we're doing it and uh, getting the job done. Yeah. And you get to do it again, apparently, with your follow on to Yokota. Yes. So I'll be heading out from here in a couple months and uh, flying out to Yokota in July. Man, we have covered so much ground. Obviously, you know, you've been in the Air Force, you know, for a while now. You've had lots of different assignments. But the really great thing about doing it in this format, you just this travel log is you get to see all these different things that the civil engineer can do, where they go, the things they touch, the people they work with. And it's really fascinating. And if we look back at everything that you've done, you know, you were a 62 but there is some overlap. There is some connection between the 62 oh, yeah. and the 32 career fields, right? Absolutely. So that's a really interesting thing. We deploy a lot, right? Absolutely. Lots of deployments. And what do we do? We build facilities. We provide a place for operations to take place. 
And we have lots of educational development opportunities. You mentioned AFIT. You went to a civilian school to get a master's degree while serving in the Air Force. Yep. On the Air Force's dime. Thank you very much. Oh, yeah. You got to be an instructor. Then you went to do a short tour that got extended <laughs> you know, to, to be two years again overseas. You got to go do the joint thing, working in a combatant command. Yeah. There are so many things the Air Force Civil Engineering Officer gets to do. Is there any doubt why we say that this is the best career field in the Air Force? So, you know, we are the tip of the spear. And so I tell my troops all the time, right? I tell my squadron, I genuinely don't believe that there is any unit or function on an installation that's more impactful to the mission. And here's why. Everything we do, right? What we do on the installation affects people from the moment that they walk onto the base, right? Grounds maintenance. Even before they get to the base. Right. The gates. The fence. And everything that's outside that is still under CE control. Absolutely. The guardhouse. And so as you're going through the base, you're driving through the base. If it looks horrible and that doesn't necessarily make you feel good about where you work, that's going to affect the mental state of those people that are coming through the gate. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we affect them when they're driving into work, when they walk into their building and how their building functions, whether the AC's on, whether the power's working, whether the toilet's flush, whether the water's running. It doesn't matter. Whatever they do inside that building, if the lighting, right? Like, so from an engineering perspective, we got to design that lighting so it's right. If the lighting's really harsh and it gives people migraines or it makes them just, you know, dysfunctional at work, that's a CE problem, right? If it's too soft or if it's not the right color, then they can't see what they're doing, then we got to be able to fix that from an engineering perspective. And so I communicate that to my squadron all the time. Yeah. You know, Herbert Hoover had a great quote. So I'm going to read this to you. It is a great profession. It's the fascination of watching a figment of imagination emerge through the aid of science to a plan on paper. And then it moves to realization in stone or metal or energy. And then it brings jobs to homes, to men. Then it elevates the standards of living and adds to the comforts of life. That is the engineer's high privilege. And then he goes on to talk about how, from an engineering perspective, as a profession, right? As a profession, everything we do has to stand for itself. It either stands or it doesn't, <laughs> right? Right. And it doesn't, right? And you go back to the engineer. When bridges fall, people are like, who's the engineer, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas for doctors, they bury their mistakes in the ground. Lawyers just argue them away, right? Like, <laughs> and so from my perspective, and, you know, and even if the plane crashes, they say, well, the engineer didn't, right? Then, you know, I'm just joking. But, you know, so from my perspective, I, I think I love what we do. I love the impact yeah. that it brings into people's lives. And to be honest with you, so I put Southcom on my list of where I wanted to go. So I've done three different missions trips down to Honduras to be able to do drinking water. Okay. Yeah. And I really believe, again, kind of going in this line, drinking water makes a tremendous impact into the economic stability and development of a country, right? Right. And so it reduces the amount of illnesses, waterborne illnesses. It allows people to function. It gets people back to school, right? So that they don't have to worry about walking two hours to get drinking water, or if they're not sick, they can get drinking water. And so having that asset and that infrastructure in place is tremendous. And so I was able to do that a couple of times, and I wanted to understand, from my perspective, a little bit more about how engineering plays in a society, how that role functions in a society to be able to transform it from an economic perspective. Yeah. And so that's my passion with engineering. I love it. I love what we do in the Air Force. I love how we get to do something that's fun, that just serves so many people on the installation. It's just a blast. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk big picture. 
what is the CE mission? We've touched on a lot of different things everywhere that the CE officer can go, but what is it really big picture that we do? Is it just to build buildings, to do landscaping and provide lights inside those buildings? Or what is it that we do? I'm going to give you another quote, right? General Hap Arnold, air bases are a determining factor in the success of our air operations. The two-legged stool of men and planes would topple without this equally important third leg. So I see an air base, right? We talk about fighting the base. I see the air base as a weapon system. Mm -hmm. And so our air bases are incredibly important. In World War II, we were able to create air bases on the shores of Normandy right after the invasion to be able to shift those weapon systems from Britain over to the shore to be able to start launching sorties from there. And that was a tremendous shift and allowed a great amount of mobility and maneuver to the U.S. forces. Right. We can't necessarily build air bases out of PCP anymore, right? It's not going to do the pure steel planking and grass runways, right? I'm not going to land an F-22 on a grass runway. It's just not going to happen. So our platforms and our weapon systems that are in the air are a whole lot more sensitive. And that means that it's not just any stretch of two-mile pavement that's going to work. I need to make sure that two-mile pavement has the right thickness, has the right depth, has the right levelness, that it's not fracturing or creating fod or generating some sort of bumps or ridges or anything like that. And then I'd be able to install additional equipment on that runway to be able to make sure that we can generate sorties effectively. Yeah. And then as we think about the Air Force's growing mission sets, particularly in the cyber arena, and we look at the U.S. Space Force and our ability to support the U.S. Space Force to be able to do its jobs, we need infrastructure. I need power systems. I need critical power systems. I need cooling systems. And that plant doesn't happen just overnight, and it doesn't maintain itself. And so making sure that those systems are ready, that they're available, that they're functioning properly, it takes a lot of TLC and it takes a lot of smart people. And part of the challenge from our profession is that there's no real TO to do what we do. Right. It's all engineering. And so it's not necessarily uh, this HVAC, you do X, Y, and Z to it. And this HVAC, you do this and this. There's no book oftentimes that I can pull out and just go, oh, well, I just need to do X, Y, and Z. It takes some creativity, some ingenuity, and some real engineering, right? To be able to figure out what those problems are and design the solution. Yeah, because so often the customer who could be anybody Mm -hmm. from across the Air Force comes to the CE squadron and says, I have a need, but they have no idea how to solve that need. And they expect the civil engineer to (laughs) then solve it for them right? to do the engineering that they need in order to accomplish their mission. Right. And you're spot on so much of the time. It's all about communication, right? Right. Communicate not to be understood, but communicate. So you can't possibly be misunderstood. And uh, so with that understanding what the customer is trying to do, and again, regardless of who the customer is, trying to get inside their mind and trying to say, okay, what is your mission? What are you trying to accomplish? What are you trying to effect? And then to take a step back and say, okay, well, maybe you're focused on this solution for the problem. Maybe we can do this. And it's just as you know effective, if not more, but it's going to cost a whole lot less, right? Or maybe I can do this in the same time I do this. I can also solve this problem over here by this other customer. Yeah. And we can try to match up and try to get the best solution for the situation. Yeah. A lot of deconflicting of priorities across an entire installation 
Absolutely. Because the flying squadron is going to want something that is going to have an impact on the security forces squadron, but they need this other thing that has a logistics tail and a maintenance cost to it. And having to rack and stack all of those things because, oh, by the way, yep. you got into this earlier, the things that we do are typically rather permanent oh, yeah. and very expensive. Again, none of the, the decisions we make are on a two-year timeline, right? We have to really practice really great asset management, right? And that means understanding, one, what we have out there, which is a challenge, right? We've been building facilities and infrastructure for the past 100 years, and some of that is still there, right? Yeah. We just recently dug up wooden water mains. Those are still out there. And working through that process to be able to manage those assets, one, first we had to understand what's out there. And then we really had to you know, do some calculus and say, okay, I'm always going to have more requirements than resources. And how can I manage my assets? How can I manage my time? How can I manage my money? And how can I manage that real property to make sure that I'm putting the dollar where it makes the most sense, right? And then I make sure that I'm taking care of that mission set and that the mission is still effective with those investments, but at the same time, I'm not taking too much risk somewhere else where I might not be investing those dollars in. Yeah, absolutely. And therein, I think, is a really good place to shift the conversation to the CE officer specifically. We've talked about the mission set of civil engineering as a whole, yeah. but how does the CE officer fit into all of that? What is their purpose? What is their role? I mentioned a little bit about the engineering profession, right? And that's what President Hoover was talking about, like this profession of engineering. And the reality is that engineers even if you're a professional engineer. So when I was in Ohio, it was a lot of peer pressure from the instructors, right? And so all of the technical instructors, they were all going out to get their license. And uh, I showed up, I just finished my master's degree and I said, you know what, why not, right? This stuff is never gonna be fresher in my mind than right after this master's degree. Right. And I said, let's go ahead and take this test, we'll get it done. And so you sit through the grueling eight hour exam, which basically covers all topics that's electrical engineering, Somehow, some way, I passed. And so I, I, I don't know how, maybe they got my exams changed out with somebody else's, but so I get my license. And when you take the license every single year, or every two years, depending on the timeline, you've got to renew and they show you the oath. Well, there's an oath, engineering oath, right? That goes along with our profession. Mm -hmm. And it means that we're going to practice engineering inside of our profession. It means that we're going to abide by an ethical code. It means that we're going to practice good judgment that's not going to put the public population in risk, right? Because what we do as engineers, it has to stand for itself, right? If that bridge falls down, somebody's going to get hurt in the process. And we got to be able to give investors, government and political officials understanding of where the limits and capacities are so folks can make good, safe decisions. Yeah. And even if someone doesn't get hurt, when that bridge collapses or when that building falls or when the runway fails, there is that loss of everything that we've been talking about, that huge investment of time and money, because as we've said multiple times now, everything that we do is permanent. It takes a long time to do to accomplish. It costs a lot of time and money in order to do those things. And without the profession of the engineer behind that, right. trying to avoid those failures then the cost goes way up. The loss goes way up. Absolutely. Absolutely. So an engineering officer for the Air Force in particular, right, we need to be able to understand 
those decisions that we're making. We need to be able to understand the engineering rigor that needs to go into making decisions for facility investments. And we need to be able to ask hard questions to our contractors, right? who are oftentimes are held to the exact same professions guidelines, but we need to make sure that we keep each other accountable in that way. And so the Air Force has made a conscious choice, right, that we will keep really good engineers in blue suits. So our profession is rather unique, right? You do have engineering, you have CBs in the Navy, you have combat engineers in the Army, and you have engineers in the Marine Corps as well. And we probably have a good ethos that's close to the CBs in that regard. But for engineers, we really need to be able to be effective in making risk-based decisions and making asset management decisions, which means understanding a lot of detailed technical information, which means understanding a lot of asset management information, balancing that, and, and being able to maintain the weapon systems yeah. that we have in air bases. And so if folks are interested, they can go out and see the CE truths, right? There's six CE truths that shape our why, what we believe from an engineering perspective and why the Air Force still has engineering. And all those things that I basically summed up right there are sort of rolled into it. But to the kind of the first and the last, right? Our air bases are power projection platform and our air bases are maintained, sustained, and built by airmen engineers. That's right. And that's our business. And as officers, we need to be able to understand risk associated with those air bases. We need to be able to articulate that risk, right? And we need to be able to understand how that engineering function rolls into the overall joint capabilities and the joint functions that the DOD brings to bear upon our enemies and our partners. Absolutely. If you would describe like the arc of the CE officer career, can't really base everything off of your career because you, know, you did things a little bit differently, <laughs> you know, going from 6'2 to, to 32, deploying before you ever went to 101. <laughs> right. But, you know, at the same time, there is no such thing as the typical career. But how does the CE officer come into the Air Force, the degree requirements, how do they develop over time? What is their potential for command and rank and those sort of things? Yeah. So to enter into the civil engineering career field, right, the CE profession, CE officer, uh, you just need an engineering degree from an ABET accredited university. And so engineering, we had, so I taught initial skills training there at 101, right? We met first time. I think I had five rotations that I taught. We had biomedical engineers. We had forestry engineers, you know, your standard mechanical, electrical, a civil, not so many electricals, right? But we had an aeronautical engineer come through, gosh, with just a whole kind of gambit, industrial systems engineers, which I always love those because at, at Virginia Tech, we call them imaginary engineers. <laughs> not to be confused with Imagineers. Not to be confused with Imagineers, but, you know, industrial systems is, from an asset management perspective, it's actually really good, right? Because it basically says, how are you developing your processes and procedures and how can you do it better, right? How can you manage your overall system? Yeah. And so that kind of system engineering is actually a pretty good thing to have. And we also actually have architects. So architects is the other degree that can come into the career field. Mm -hmm. That's not engineering, but engineering and architects. And folks will come in, they'll go through Management 101, and typically they don't go through Management 101 until they've been at their base for about six months. And the reason why is that we want you to understand a little bit of about the CE squadron for your location. There are no two CE squadrons that look alike right. in the Air Force, right? Because there are no two bases that look exactly the same. Exactly. The CE squadron developed is there to be able to support that weapon system. And each of those weapon systems, you know, we've got 
every single one of those hundreds of bases that are out there are unique. Yeah. They have unique missions that they support. They have unique functions on that installation. And we've got to be able to adapt ourselves to whatever needs attention on that installation. You'll spend some time, you'll understand the functions of that particular installation. After that, you'll go to 101 and you'll come back and you'll probably bounce around a lot as a lieutenant in that first four-year assignment. And typically we leave our first time officers at their first installation for about four years. They might work in engineering flight, doing project management mm -hmm. or project programming. And project programming is essentially looking at those customer requests, right? This customer says, I want this and this done. And you try to nug through that and say, is that really what you need done? Or what about this? Why is this the best solution? Or could this solution work? And you try to work it out with them. And then you come up with the right color of money to put against that requirement. And then you get the right approval, right? Yeah. So depending on the color of money, you might need congressional approval if it's Milcon, right? So you might have to get a congressional budget passed <laughs> to be able to make that happen, which is not an easy task, mind you. Right. If it's something a little less, you might just need the squadron commander's signature on there to be able to approve that particular requirement. And so that's project programming. You might work with our asset management flight on real property accountability. So we're supposed to understand all of the real property that's on the base. And that's part of that asset management approach, right? I need to know where all my sidewalks are. I need to know where all my electrical lines are, where my water lines are, where my sewer lines are, where my lift stations are. I need to know what's the square footage of every single building out there. What kind of floors are made in that building? Mm -hmm. How many windows does it have? What kind of windows are they? What kind of roof does it have? How long has that roof been on there? What kind of mechanical system does it have? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. That's a very difficult task, right? You might have a chance to work in the environmental flight. Not too many Air Force officers spend time here, but they can. And that's basically making sure that we're being good stewards, right? We haven't always made the best decisions <laughs> in the DOD. You know, we had one situation at Pope Air Force Base when we were working a gate project and literally like the whole gate was awarded. I want to say the contract was awarded for the gate. And lo and behold, it was right over the top of where they thought they had dumped a bunch of, I believe it was mustard gas or something oh, no. <laughs> previously. And so they actually had to like shift everything over to be able to make sure that they didn't dig up all this mustard gas or disturb the site. So again, tracking where all those sites are, working mitigation or remediation to be able to restore an environmental ecosystem to where it should be due to maybe we made a mistake in the past and we've got to do some restoration. Which is an interesting one when you consider yeah. what we do overseas. You know, we've been saying that so much of what civil engineers do is permanent. Right. But when we deploy when we go to do a contingency we don't want things to be permanent right we want to go there do our operation be done with it and leave and be like good boy scouts and leave no trace exactly and that's understanding those contingency operations right that's all part of this base level experience right so you're working your day-to-day -day making sure that air base weapon system is ready to execute its mission and support its mission and at the same time, you're exercising to deploy and you're possibly deploying, right, to go downrange and support contingency requirements for combatant commands all across the world, most likely to AFSENT and into the sandbox. But that is absolutely what we need to be ready to do, right? Mm -hmm. And that's working in tents or working with expeditionary equipment, with power generation and making sure that we're being good stewards there. Because even in a deployed environment, if the country has environmental constraints, we will abide by those unless... The U.S. has more restrict constraints. And if the U.S. has more restrictive constraints, we'll go with the U.S. constraints. Yeah. 
And then that way, we're just, again, trying to be the best stewards that we can of the resources and the property and the land that we're operating on. But as you get promoted up to captain, there's like no shortage of what you can do as a captain, right? So you can, you know, you can go be a USAFA instructor within the 32E career field, right? You could go be an AFIT instructor, you could go do ROTC, you could be SOS instructor, right? All those additional duties. We do exchanges with the CBs. Mm -hmm. You could start getting into the RAS program. And of course, as you get closer to the major grade, you can move into the PAS program. The PAS program is a little bit more unique is you do earn a secondary AFS. So I have a secondary AFS as a 16 Papa PAS officer, and I can go back and work in the PAS career field if IES has openings and they're willing to rotate me out. And the career field, the CE career field is willing to release me. But then also as a captain, you have the opportunities, right, to do EWI, engineering with industry, mm -hmm. which is a great opportunity because, again, we work a lot with contractors, right? So right. you were talking about the similarities between 62 Echoes and 32Es, right? A lot of what we do, we couldn't do without our contracting partners to be able to make sure we get companies to do a lot of the building and construction just because we can't be in that many places at the same time, right? There's a lot of change, a lot of stuff going on. As a captain, you could go back to school, right? You go back to school and go back to teach, or you could just go back to school and get a GEM program at AFIT, right? The Graduate Engineering Management Degree and get your master's that way. And of course, there's all the staff positions. So one of the things I love about our career field, right? There is no place you can't go. Right. Like, you can, <laughs> like if there's a building there, there's going to be a CE officer there, most likely, like nine times out of 10. Right. And if there's the irony too, is like, if there's a sister service building there, there's probably a CE officer there because our sister services understand how awesome mm -hmm. CE officers are in the Air Force, right? <laughs> Just to toot our own horn. No, it's true. Like there are no limitations on where the CE officer can go within the DOD, not just the Air Force. Right. And any of the MAGCOM staffs, right? Any IMSC debt and AFCAC, and you can go work for the, you know, IMSC, of course. And so you can do any of those. And then if you're still at the base level two, you could be a flight command in engineering flight or readiness and emergency management or EOD. And so I'll hit those two last because I feel like that's, and then I also want to talk Red Horse. So readiness and emergency management. So one of the things that CE is responsible for is emergency management and fire response and EOD response on an installation. So the only officers within the Air Force that ever get to go to the Explosive Ordnance School is CE officers. And so you can apply for it as a lieutenant or a captain. Typically, they take senior first lieutenants or very young captains. That way they can get the most out of them before their field grades. Mm -hmm. And you'll do an EOD assignment, and then you'll do an Air Force assignment, and you'll do an EOD assignment, and you do an Air Force assignment, and you rotate back and forth. Like the RAS and PAS, you pick up that secondary AFSC, but yep. it's a different shred within the 32 Echo AFS in order to be a, an EOD officer. Right. And so, you know, who wouldn't want to wear a bomb suit and go defuse bombs with their bare hands, right? I mean, I don't think I ever really had the desire to do that. I take my <laughs> I definitely did. I still do. I still do. You know, I've had a couple of lieutenants that have had applied for it. And I admit, like the small unit leadership that you get within EOD, it's a very tight community. They really do take care of their own. And they're just a blast to be around. They're a blast to operate with. They're a lot of fun. And blast. I see it, what it's you a blast. There. It's a blast. And the reality, too, is, is I think all of them understand, like, I think what I appreciate about them is that there's a by the book process, right? Mm -hmm. For what they do, but they really understand that things never go as planned. Right. 
I wish so many people, I feel like they're like, well, you just do X, Y, and Z. And you're like, yeah, it's probably not going to be that easy, but okay, we'll start that way. Have to engineer a solution. You got to engineer a solution, right? A Semper Gumby, right? Just stay flexible. But so CE, you know, we own these emergency management, fire response on the installation and those EOD functions. And of course, emergency management, typically your base civil engineer, the CE squadron commander will be running the EOC, the Emergency Operations Center, because the vast majority of the emergency support functions, the ESFs, that's in that EOC are engineering functions, right? Or they tie back to engineering in some way or some fashion. Right. And we are responsible as engineers to be able to support the air bases, again, a weapon systems response to emergencies and its ability to recover itself and then start generating mission, whether it's a soft mission in cyber or whether it's a hard mission of putting warheads on foreheads. That's what we're designed to do. And so we have those emergency management, and that might be in a contested environment where you have seaburn type stuff, right? Chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear things that you got to be able to respond to and mitigate in the process or just be able to respond to and operate in slime, for lack of a better phrase, <laughs> you know? And we are responsible for being able to... Literal poop flowing <laughs> in the streets. Maybe. Because it will happen. They could if a sewer system backs up, man. Those lift stations got to keep going. So we're also responsible then for training our fellow airmen on how to wear the J-list suit and how to operate in that seaburn environment, right? What kind of sirens you're going to hear go off, what M8 and M9 paper looks like. How do you report things in if there's something that you see outside? So you can do all of those at that captain level. And then as we start to shift gears and move into the field grade officer range as majors and lieutenant colonels, again, it's really all about what we as a DOD need to be able to start to take a step back. Okay, you understand tactically how engineers support the Air Force space, how it supports the air mission. And hopefully by this time, you've hit multiple match comms too, right? How I develop my developmental plan, like, look, I want to go to these match comms because I've never worked in them. Right. I need to understand from an Air Force perspective, I know what ACC does. I know what Air Mobility Command does, right? But I've never worked in Global Strike. And so I need to understand what Global Strike does so I can better support a bigger perspective in the Air Force as a whole of how we contribute air power to the joint fight. Or for that matter, going to a joint base and seeing how things are done there. Absolutely. And getting that purple perspective, right? And so for me... You know, as you've been on that ops chief job, of course, the ideal job, right? Ops flight. As a major, you have the opportunity to command an operations flight, which could be anywhere from like, you know, 25 if it's contracted out to 100, 200 airmen engineers that are out there jobbing it day in, day out. Which is interesting because it's called a flight. Right. But some ops flights are bigger than some squadrons. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I apologize. I failed to mention. So as a captain, too, you do have the opportunity to do Red Horse, right? So the really the difference we call prime beef, the, the deployable engineering capabilities that are standard UTCs bring to bear. The really big difference between Red Horse and prime beef, which is your kind of like base level engineering support, is that Red Horse goes with the equipment. Yeah. So when you deploy a Red Horse unit, they're showing up with everything ready to get the job done, but they're largely focused more so on horizontal type capabilities. They've definitely stepped out. They do case bands for sure, right? And so they'll do vertical construction, but their bread and butter, right, is large scale pavements and whatnot. But they bring everything with them. 
Whereas prime beef, when they deploy, they might take some hand tools with them. But other than that, it's largely we got to find some equipment for them at the deployed location. Well, and the other thing about Red Horse is that they are self-sustaining. They not only bring the equipment, but they bring the force support and the logistics and the contracting with them Yeah, so that they can do everything in-house, which is really an important thing because so often we think of Red Horse as being a strictly CE capability, right? but there are other officers that can do Red Horse as well. Right. And no, you're spot on. We have contracting, we have financing and PERSCO functions and FSS functions to be able to help us through those processes because it's largely a combat support role to be able to establish how we sustain, how we build and operate weapon system platform of an airbase. So that's a really neat opportunity to broaden your perspective and get a little bit more operational. One of the other things that you can do is CRGs. So the contingency response groups or contingency response squadrons, Yep. again, helping out largely for natural disasters or emergencies, being able to support our partner nations or even within the states of trying to recover in times of crisis, right? So moving on into field grade officer land, right? You can do command, of course, Red Horse Squadron Command, CE Squadron Commands. You can do Mission Support Squadron Commands. You can spend more time at staff if you didn't get enough time of that as a captain, <laughs> right? Which, you know, a lot of folks knock staff, but staff exists, right, to help the installations. And staffs also have to exist because the reality is we've got more requirements than resources. Mm-hmm. And we've got to make really hard decisions, right? you got to prioritize ruthlessly to be able to make sure that we're putting the money where it matters. And that might mean that we might have to take a little bit more risk over there and might have to take a little less risk over here. So you have to be able to make those really hard calls. And so we have the opportunity to you know, work on any of the MAGCOM staffs, any of the NAF staffs, any of the COCOM staffs. We have billets on all of those where you could go. Right. Right. So there, again, there really is like no, there's no right way. There's no like guaranteed path. It's where your passion takes you as you carry your passion with you through life. So yeah. And that's definitely something that Reed and I talk about regularly here on the podcast is being self-aware enough, pursuing the things that are important to you to find your own success, you know, finding a path that is going to work for you and your family if you have one. Right. And, you know, if you want rank, as a civil engineer, you can have it. Yep. Civil engineers promote really well. Yeah. There are lots of opportunities to be an 06. There's a few opportunities to be an 07. I think that there's still one opportunity to be an 08, a major general. Not that rank is all important, but it's good to know that, like I was saying, that CE officers do promote really well. We compete really well within the line of the Air Force C combat support category where we are lumped together with logistics and force support and security forces. We actually, yeah, we did. I was trying to remember what the last statistics were for 06. It was actually pretty impressive. I wanted to say it was like 18 of 19. The last board was, you know. Hey, you're saying there's a chance. (laughs) That's right. You know, but we talk about like the pinnacle, right? Is squadron command, right? And like, it's one of the hardest, most challenging jobs in our Air Force as a squadron commander, but it's also the most rewarding and challenging, right? You learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about our Air Force. You learn a lot about the, the best asset, the most important asset that our Air Force has, and that's the people that make it go, right? For sure. So, you know, as 0405, you're doing those things and potentially going to... 
Eric Mann and Staff College or doing it correspondence, right? Or maybe stepping outside of your career field and broadening your horizons a little bit with some of those staff perspectives or some of those career broadening assignments. And hopefully, you know, you have the opportunity from my perspective. So I just got through JPME2. I have an awesome group commander. I don't know why he agreed to letting me go, but as a sitting <laughs> squadron commander, I tried to go when I was at Southcom and they said they couldn't deal with me away for that long, which I don't necessarily think that I was that pivotal, but I think they just wanted somebody back because the boss was always traveling. They wanted somebody back to reach, right. reach and grab a hold of. And so we did it correspondence, which was a little painful, I will readily admit, and that we did it correspondence just because of the COVID. But what an awesome experience, man, going through JPME2 and sitting down and understanding, walking through the joint planning process and sitting in a class with a bunch of really smart Army 05s, Navy 05s, 06s, and we had it myself and a couple of other Air Force O4s and then some Marine Corps guys that were very hoorah. So very, very <laughs> hoorah. But it was awesome, right? I mean, just being able to talk through these requirements. And I'll tell you what, man, the biggest thing that we talked about in that class in campaign planning and contingency planning, right? It was all about logistics, right? How we get engineering support functions out there, how we get beans and bullets out there, how we get those sustainment functions out there. There's an amazing video we watched, which I made sure that everybody else understood at least the one line out of it. A gentleman, some PhD guy was talking about, you know, wars and conflicts and contingencies and just basically said, said it straight up, like the most important thing you need to do is get engineers in there quick. And I was just like, yes. Like, yes. So <laughs> Who was it that said this? I had to go back and find the video again of the video we watched, but it made me cringe at the same time it made me celebrate, right? Like, right. yes, we're that important. But it really is, you know, having that engineering capability mm -hmm. and build schools or build clinics or, or do something like that. It firms up the confidence that population has in their governance, right? And it makes that governance stronger. And if our partners are stronger, then we're stronger. And so much of JPME2 from a campaign perspective, right, was about how do we get partners, right? How do we keep partners? How do we earn partners? And that requires trust. That requires confidence. And frankly, you know, if you want to look at our near peers and China's policy of Belt and Road Initiative, that's engineering right there, man. It is. It's meeting infrastructure requirements and meeting infrastructure development and economic development within countries. Building islands out in the middle of the ocean. That's engineering. And building islands. That's pretty intensive engineering. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go, CBs. This is you. <laughs> Let's see. Oh, yeah, that would be pretty cool. Have an island building cape in the CBs. That would be pretty legit. Well, great. Chef, we have covered so much ground. My notes here are like pages. <laughs> and I'm a civil engineer. Like, I've been there. I've done this. But I'm learning so much about what the career field is capable of. And this is exactly why I wanted you to be the one to come speak on what and why and how of civil engineering. I knew I could do it, but I definitely couldn't have done it to this level. So thank you so much for taking the time to share all of this. And even though we covered so much ground, we didn't even cover the half of it. Yeah, There's still even so much more that civil engineers are involved in, that the CE officer has a responsibility for, that what they go through to become the expert on all things infrastructure yeah. and emergency response, emergency management, all those things. And then just like you were getting into the very end here. Command. 
command. We didn't even spend any time on that. (laughs) And we're just going to have to bring you back. I think we might be able to make that happen, brother. Okay. All right. As is our want, we want to wrap up here with just a couple more questions. First of all, how is it that you want people to get in touch with you in case they have questions about becoming a civil engineer, being a civil engineer, developing as a civil engineer, where they can go? Maybe they want to do RAS, PAS. Maybe they want to go work for a COCOM or something like that. How would you like people to get in touch with you with those questions? So, yeah, so they can definitely look me up on the global if they want to do it that way or hit me up on my personal email. It's the T-S-C-H-E-F-L at V-T dot E-D-U. Still rocking the V-T. Still rocking the V-T, man. That's awesome. (laughs) Virginia Tech was nice enough to let me keep it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. All right. So then our final question here, I'm super excited to hear this from you again. This is going to be a mentorship moment for me as I've learned so much from you, not just here, but in the past. Please, chef, teach me (laughs) what does it mean to be an officer? What does it mean to be an officer? Man, I've thought about this long and hard, right? Because I've been listening to all this episode and I've gotten a lot of really great nuggets from a lot of your other guests you've had on here. So I think really in my mind, what it means to be an officer, it it really means to be able to take in a lot of information, to digest that information, and to be able to make risk-informed decisions, to be able to make sure that we're meeting the guidance and direction of our civilian leadership within our country and meeting the intent of that civilian leadership, and while also being good stewards of the resources that we have been entrusted with and being able to take responsibility with the execution of those resources and the leadership of those people that were assigned. And that's probably the leadership of those people is probably the most difficult part, right? You manage the resources and you lead the people. Nobody wakes up, as Simon Sinek put in, and leaders eat last, right? Nobody wakes up in the morning thinking to themselves, man, I'm going to get to go to work today and I'm going to get to be managed, right? You know, but people are starving. They wake up in the morning, like even me, like I want to wake up in the morning, lead me, right? I want that. Yeah. And uh, I think as an officer is our trusted responsibility and willingness to be held accountable, right, for that responsibility, to be able to execute resources in accordance with the guidance and direction of our civilian leadership while leading the people in the execution of those resources and obtaining those objectives that we've been given. That's probably the best I can come up with. I've been working through it for a while. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wholeheartedly agree. There are so many layers and levels to what it means to be an officer. And if you are honest within yourself, there is no wrong answer. Yeah. Right. And so with that, thank you so much, Lieutenant Colonel Tim Scheffler. Thank you for taking the time to share your knowledge, share your experience with us, to teach me one more time (laughs) the importance of civil engineering, the importance of being a CE officer, and how we can use our engineering, use our problem solving, use our skills that we develop on behalf of the Air Force and the people that we serve. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you, Colin. And thank you for both what you and Reed do. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to join your brother. Again, Reed, I hope that it came through this interview. How amazing of a person, how great both personally and professionally Chef is. Obviously, I'm biased that civil engineering is the greatest career field in the entire Air Force. But I hope that. The audience now knows why I say that. I hope everybody feels like Colonel Scheffler did the career field justice and that people have 
a much better appreciation for the career field. They're more willing to pursue that for a career for themselves, or they're more willing and more understanding of how to work with civil engineers in order to accomplish the mission. Yeah, one thing for sure, he's headed out to command in Yakota. Uh, lucky group, yeah. lucky squadron that's going to get him as a commander. So that's something I took away. I definitely got that sense of, you know, what it is that makes a good commander. It was definitely there. So just awesome stuff. Yeah, for sure. So there was something I did want to talk about, Colin, and this is a question I don't necessarily have an answer to, but I think it's really important to discuss. Something you kind of said almost offhand as an aside when you were talking about deployments. You said how they can bring out the best in you. Mm -hmm. And you quickly said they can, they can bring out the best in you. Not always, but they often do bring out the best in you. And I wanted to talk about what do we do for those who don't perform, who don't meet the mark Mm. when the bullets are flying, when the deployment's happening. Because you and I have both seen that. Yes, we have. We have been downrange and we have had people who, for whatever reason, just couldn't put it together when the pressure was on, when they got in the game. We've used that analogy before. Yeah. What do we do? What do we do with those folks? What is the reaction of the community? My community had a positive reaction, but it wasn't the greatest at the same time. So what are your thoughts on that? What do we do when the chips are down, they're in the game, and they don't deliver? Oh man, this is so tough. But the first thing that comes to mind is that you need to put them in a position where they are not going to jeopardize the mission because the mission has to come first, right? Yeah. Especially when you're downrange and it's not a training environment anymore. You're not preparing to do the fight, but you're actually there conducting operations on behalf of combatant commanders and the American people and all that. You need to you know, assess the risk of this person staying in the position, carrying the responsibility that they're in. Can the mission continue to be successful while they are there and you try to rehabilitate them, develop them? And if the answer is no, if they are going to jeopardize the mission, you need to remove them. Yeah. Yeah. Which is what we did. Yeah. Okay. We ended up assigning this person some ancillary duties that were needed, but they were not what that person was there for. And it kind of hurt the organization, right? We were short a body. We needed people to do this role. So it kind of put a tax on everybody. You know, everybody had to work longer shifts, more days, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you can't risk the mission. And it was just a fascinating experience. And so when you brought that up, it made me think, you know, this is going to happen. People are not going to meet the mark. And it's not to say that this person was a bad officer. Right. Or that they couldn't do other things. And that's actually what this person has gone on to do. They've gone on to do other things that are valuable to the service, but this don't directly contribute like we kind of needed at that time. But what are some other things that we can do for these folks? Yeah. And I kind of alluded to that, that there is this responsibility for you to rehabilitate, to develop, to help this person to address whatever their weakness is. And central to all of that is providing feedback. Yeah. Feedback the entire time. Feedback while they are performing poorly even, you know, helping them to recognize where it is that they're falling short, giving them, you know, some additional training, additional resources, whatever it is that they might need, yeah, within whatever's possible and helping them to improve. And if they don't improve, more feedback is needed. Yeah. 
helping them recognize where they have, again, fallen short and what the repercussions are going to be for them, for the Air Force. And, you know, we've talked about this before, Reed, especially in our episode about the officer evaluation system, that we as an Air Force collectively don't do feedback very well. Yeah. And we recognize that we are actively working to change that. We have some new forms, some new ways of thinking about, you know, airman leadership qualities, these ALQs, and there's a feedback form that goes directly with that. And so we're moving in the right direction. However, really big comma, if we don't take ownership of that, especially as the officers, then it doesn't matter what the tool is. It doesn't matter what we call it. If we can't get feedback right, then we're going to find ourselves in this situation more often than not, where people are suffering, the mission is suffering, and we're not going to be able to solve it. Yeah. Well, and think about Colonel Scheffler and his career. How many times small, critical, and essential feedback led him to take a path that is anything but linear? Yeah. And aren't we all the better for it? I mean, just as he was talking about you know, heading out to Yokota and the opportunity to take that command, I just kept thinking how lucky those folks were. Mm-hmm. Because the variety of experience that he'd had over his career doing so many different things, none of which are the canonical, he commissioned as a 6-2. Yeah. His career is anything but a 6-2 career. And, you know, we, we talked about that with Major Willett, but he would not have gotten where he is without feedback, without people telling him things he needed to know and things he needed to hear. And I want to say something here about being around him. He was not the squadron commander when we were deployed to Al-Udeed, but he was my direct boss. He was my direct supervisor. He was great with feedback, both formal, informal. He was really, really good at being attentive to what I was working on, the things that I was dealing with, both personally and professionally. And I became the engineer that I am because of him. However, and this is something that I need to highlight here because I'm sure that there are some people that are listening to this and are aware of the fact that I am cross-training out of engineering into space operations. It may have been a direct result of his feedback and others that I've associated with over the course of my time as an engineer. Because of that feedback, I have recognized I am not a good engineer and that I would better serve the Air Force, and I would feel more comfortable in my own skin and in the uniform serving elsewhere. And that is a direct result of feedback. Yeah. And so I want to thank Colonel Scheffler. Thank you, Chef, for being the great example of what an engineer can and should be, and also showing that it's okay to go other directions. Thanks for sharing, Colin. That's got to be hard to say out loud. And it does make me think, right? So Chef commissioned as a 6-2, then became a 32, and now is a FAO. You know, like, sometimes we don't end up in the right career field. Yeah. But there's no way for us to know that unless someone says something. Mm -hmm. It may not be the right fit. I commissioned as a chemist. I could tell at tech school, just like Chef could, that this was not the career field for me. Yeah. And... I was lucky enough to get to a place where I feel like I found my calling and found my tribe. That's not going to happen for everybody the first time. And that feedback's essential. And so, yeah, really good points. And I thought he did a good job of bringing that up for us to discuss. Reed, there's one more thing that I want to bring up. And I think this is a good place to end it. That you mentioned that he is a sitting 
squadron commander, the first that we've brought onto this show. He's going to be a squadron commander again. And over the course of this interview, which notice it's a little bit longer than usual, and we didn't even touch on command. Like we just brushed over it. Yeah. And I realized that at the end, and we talked about it after the fact, I was like, oh man, we didn't even talk about command. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But then I was thinking about it and like, look at what he's done up to this point. You know, however many years of service, 15, 16 something years of service now. And it's taken that much to build the commander that he is. Yep. And so it kind of like the interview speaks for itself. Yeah. In that regard. Yes, we absolutely need to have the conversation around command. It's definitely something that we want to pursue in the future, especially because you and I have never been commanders before. Yes. That's something that you and I need to learn more about. Mm -hmm. But just looking at everything that he's accomplished, been involved with, everything that has built him up to this point where he was prepared to take command, be successful at it to the point where they're going to give him another shot. Yeah. And not just anywhere, but like closest to one of our greatest rivals in modern day right now, you know? Yeah. I had the same thought, you know, it's a lucky group, you know, he's going to be a great commander. You can just tell. And how much did it take to get him there? That's absolutely something I was thinking about as I was just bathing in this excellence of knowledge as I'm sitting there preparing for this podcast today. So really good interview. I thought there's so much in there. I just listen, listen, this is what right sounds like. (laughs) So just pay attention to the amazing knowledge bombs that Chef brought. And so glad you were able to make that arrangement happen before he heads out there and is now offset, you know, whatever, 13 hours opposite from us, which would make recording almost impossible. But yeah, great interview, learned a ton. And I'll let you have your celebration of the 32 Echo career field. We all know Intel's better, but I had my episode. I'll let you have yours. Hey, notice at the very end, he said that when it comes to joint planning and all of that what takes the cake? What is most important? What did he say? I'm not even going to... I'll let you say it, Colin. He said, logistics and support is the number one thing. Thank you. I don't need to say anything else. Yep. And that will wrap it up for this week's episode of Commission Ed. <laughs>